Let's ask the Lord to illuminate his word to us. Let's pray together. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. May your spirit shine in our hearts now through his word to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Our text for this morning is going to be uh, verses 5 through 11. Uh, But to remind us of our context, I'm going to begin our reading at verse 1. So Philippians chapter 2, beginning our reading at verse 1. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, Being of full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Then our text. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, probably very well-known words, well-loved words in this text from our, from our God, reminding us of the great work of Jesus Christ, and we want to consider this passage together in light of uh, what the Apostle Paul has been saying so far. Um, and we know that oftentimes when someone's explaining an idea to us, it can be helpful if they use an illustration. Um, we, we sometimes have trouble understanding abstract ideas, and so if someone could come along and say, well, this is an illustration of what I mean, that can be very helpful for us. Uh, as we've been thinking in the evening service about the sacraments, they in a way help us to do that. They are visible illustrations of what God's Word teaches us about Christ crucified being our only ground of salvation. That just what the Word preaches to our ears, the sacraments preach to our eyes. They're illustrations uh, for us to help understand these spiritual truths. And God often does that for us. He provides us with illustrations to illustrate the truth. And Paul has been making an argument to God's people, having laid the foundation of who we are in Christ and the gospel message. He's turned now to say what God's people ought to do. Um, He began at the end of chapter one talking about us living a life that's worthy of the gospel and that such a life looks like, what, what such a life looks like in selfless love to our neighbor. 
And it's as if Paul now gets to a point of saying, let me illustrate what I've been talking about. Let me illustrate what it's like to live a life worthy of the gospel. And of course, the best illustration of a worthy life that the Apostle Paul can think of is the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in many ways, this passage fits in with what we've already considered. It's the answer to the question, what a worthy life looks like. Um, It looks like Christ's life. And so we want to look at his life together and think about his life. Um, And as we think about it, we want to think about it in three ways. Sure, you're shocked to hear that, but we're we're going to think about it in three ways. Uh, when we look to the life of Jesus Christ, what are we to look at? What are we to think about? We're to first consider his service. Uh, we're, we're told what Jesus does when he comes into the world, and we're called upon to consider his service. Secondly, then Paul calls us to cultivate his mind, um, and we'll talk about what that means when we get there. To cultivate his mind. And finally, we're called to remember his reward. Um, I tried to think of another C, but I couldn't come up with one. And so the better word is always the better choice. And so uh, remember his reward. That's what we want to do. Look to Christ, consider his service, cultivate his mind, and remember his reward. Uh, That's what we're called to do in this passage. First, we're to consider his service. One of the remarkable things that we're given here in this word is a window into the mind of Jesus before he came into the world. Um, Maybe we we don't think that much about what Jesus thought about before his incarnation, uh, what the second person of the Trinity, the eternally begotten Son of God, was doing before he came into the world. The Gospels tell us a lot about what his mind was in the world, the things that he thought and did that motivated his service in the world, and those are very precious to us. We can think of Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, where Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, We get a window into the mind of the incarnate Christ as he's in the world, in the flesh, and living for his people. Or Hebrews 12, 2, thinking about the life of Jesus, reminds us that he who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. Now, that gives us a window, doesn't it, into the mind of our Lord as he's in the world. And people have pointed out, interestingly here though, we're given a window into the mind of the Lord before he came into the world. What the Son of God thought before he became incarnate um, in the flesh, in history, in the world. Um, and his state of mind in doing that. And it's a wonderful thing that he was willing to do. Because the Apostle Paul says, although he was in, in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It gives us something of a window, doesn't it, into the mind of Christ before he came into the world. Although he was in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Um, That word form there means the essential character of something. Um, It's an important term that Paul uses. Some people have misunderstood what this meant, as if Jesus wasn't truly God. He was somehow in the form of God. And that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is saying. He's he's talking about his essential character. Uh, The essential character of our Lord Jesus Christ before the incarnation was he was glorious God, equal with his Father, co-eternal, co-equal with the Father from before all worlds. 
That's who he was. And amazingly, he did not consider that to be something to be grasped. Something to be held on to for his own advantage. It gives us something of an understanding of who Jesus is, even before he comes into the world. Someone who, although he is glorious God, does not consider being glorious God a thing to be grasped after for his own advantage. I think that's a really important point. Because isn't it true that the first human sin was grasping after equality with God? What was the temptation that the devil came to Adam and Eve with in the garden? You know, God said the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die, but I'm here to tell you, you won't die. What will happen if you eat that fruit? You'll become like God, knowing the difference between good and evil. Isn't there a sense in which that first sin was a grasping after equality with God? And they lost their glory through that. Right? They surrendered it in their sin. Here, Jesus shows that as a second Adam, he's going to be so different because he doesn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped after for his own advantage. And whereas Adam and Eve shed their glory unwillingly in their sin, here is the Son of God who willingly puts off his glory for the sake of those who would unclothe themselves. For the sake of those who had given up their glory in sin, grasping after equality with God. It's a wonderful picture of what our Lord Jesus Christ was willing to do, coming into the world to serve his people, not grasping after glory, not grasping after the form of glorious godliness that was his, but willing to humble himself and become like us. Paul in a remarkable way says he gave up being in the form of God to become in the form of a servant. To make that his essential character. No longer glorious God, but now his essential character is suffering servant. To go from being equal with the Father to being just like us. Except for sin. You know, we confess that every Sunday, don't we, that, that Christ became, came in the flesh. We confess about his incarnation, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. We, we often have that on our hearts and on our minds. We talk so often that Christ came in the flesh. We talk so often about the incarnation that we can sometimes realize, forget the, the magnitude of what he gave up and the extent of his humiliation. People point out, you know, if he gave up who he was to come into the world and be Caesar Augustus at the time, to be, to be the head of the whole known world, that would have been a huge demotion for him. But that's not what he came to be. He didn't come to be a king. He came to be a servant. Right? Not to reign in a, in a palace, but to suffer through the slog of life like everyone else. That was a huge humiliation on his part. There's a huge gap between God and us. And he was willing to forego that glory in heaven and to become like us. To come into this world. To suffer that great humiliation, that great departure from glory. 
so that he could do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. Because he, unlike other people, unlike any other person who ever lived, was obedient in life. We're told that he was obedient to the point of death. And it might be easy for our minds to rush right to the cross and to think about what that represents, but the passage reminds us he was obedient to the point of death. He was obedient in life. He lived a life of perfect service to God and to his neighbor. It's a wonderful testimony to who Jesus was, isn't it? That, as one commentator put it, from womb to tomb, he never did anything but that which was glorifying to God, that which was good for his neighbor. It's a wonderful testimony to the obedience of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how his life is categorized for us in the Gospels. John, or Luke 2.52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. He, he was obedient to the point of death. He was always obedient, and actually his obedience was always growing and increasing. It was always perfect, but he was always getting wiser. He was always doing better. He was perfected in his obedience through what he suffered. That's the remarkable testimony to his life in Hebrews 5, 8, and 9. And although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. He didn't just obey in his life. He grew in obedience. It was ongoing and growing in his life. And where does that come from? Well, Proverbs says it comes from steadfast love and faithfulness. Proverbs 3 and 4 says, you know, if you have steadfast love and faithfulness and you bind them to yourself, you, write, you put them around your neck, you write them on the tablet of your heart, what will happen? So you will find favor and good success in the eyes of God and man. That's who Jesus was all of his life. He was obedient in life and he was obedient to the point of death. Um, he kept giving to his God and to God's people until there was nothing left for him to give. Until he had given his life and his soul and his body. And when there was nothing left for him to give, he gave up his life. Um, that's who Jesus was in his life. He humbled himself to the point of death and death on a cross. Paul's talking to a Roman audience that would understand the, the punch of that last phrase. Because for Romans, that was the worst way you could die. They considered it more merciful to be burnt alive than to die on a cross. It was reserved for the worst of the worst. And so the punch of what Paul says here is that he who came into this world, who emptied himself of the glory of godliness, to come and be a servant, to obey the way that we need to obey, and to die the death that we couldn't die, died in the worst way possible. Died in a way the Romans would have considered the worst way possible, and that the Jews would have considered an accursed death under the law. He came to die that kind of death that he might serve his people. And so Paul calls on us in a real way to consider the service that Christ has offered to his people. He emptied himself of everything 
that he might fill us with his fullness. That he might come to sinners who had nothing and give them everything they needed. That that's what he was willing to do. Everything in his life in service of his father and of his father's people. The people that his father loved and that he loved. And so we're called on the, in this passage to consider his service. And then Paul tells us something remarkable. Cultivate his mind. Right? Paul doesn't just say, stand back and think of our Savior and think of all the glorious work he did. He does say that. But he says more than that. Why are we to consider it? Why are we to think about it? So that we can cultivate the same mindset in our lives. Right. What is the command of verse 5? Have this mind. Maybe at this point we're tempted to say, okay, Paul, you're asking too much now. It was hard enough for me to sit there and have you tell us that we need to live a life worthy of the gospel. I've been struggling with that enough. And then when you unfolded that and said what that means is selfless love that does nothing out of humility or or selfishness and does everything for my neighbor, that was hard enough for me to swallow. And just when I thought it couldn't get any harder, you drop this on me. Have this mind, the mind of Jesus Christ. Now I think you're asking too much. I think you're asking for what's impossible. Um, And so if we really want to understand what God's word is calling us to do, we have to remind ourselves of some important things. That when God calls us to cultivate the mind of Christ, he's not saying create that mind in yourself. He's reminding us in a powerful sense that mind is already in you. So don't miss that in light of his command. Look at verse 5 with me. Have this mind... Right? Among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This call is reminding us we're not trying to create something in ourselves that we don't already have. This passage is wonderfully reminding us that mind is already in you, and it's in you because you are in Christ. You are vitally connected to this one who did all these things. Right? We, are, we are never to lose sight of that, that God's call to sanctification, his call to live a life of service to him, never comes detached from who we have become in Christ. Never comes apart from that vital connection that we enjoy with Christ. And the Bible never wants us to miss that, that, that union with Christ and what it does for God's people. Because being united to Christ is like being a living branch of a living vine. right? Again, illustrations are important in Scripture for how this operates. But Jesus says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. What does the vine do? The vine supplies life to the branches. So as long as you're connected to me, Jesus says, there's a, there is a living vitality in me that flows out to you, and that's how you can bear much fruit. Because if you cut off the branch apart from me, you can do nothing. He uses that illustration. He uses the illustration of a building. Buildings are built on foundations. Buildings are vitally connected to the foundations they sit on. 
Uh, and that's an illustration that God's word uses of us and Christ. Christ is the foundation on which we are built up as living stones. It, it's the foundation that gives us the strength to stand. Um, so we, we see that in scripture. We all see the, the illustration of a body. Christ is the head and we are his body. And life flows from him to us. And so Paul doesn't really come to us with an impossible message. Make yourself like Jesus. Um, No, he comes to us and says, Christ is in you. That's the hope of glory. And Christ in you will operate. You have this mind that was Christ's mind at work in you. It's not like he's way up there and you're way down here and how are we ever going to bring the two together? No, it's you've been brought into him. You've brought, been brought into fellowship with him by his work. He sent his spirit and now this mind that accomplished all of this for your salvation is at work in you. That's where we find any of the hope to do the things that Paul has called us to do. And that should be a great encouragement to us. Because the things that are impossible for us are not impossible for him. Paul's whole point here is he's already done it. He's already done it all. And so we can go forward then and not try to be, make ourselves something we're not, but again, be who you are. Right? That's really what the gospel call of sanctification is. I think I've said that to you before. And if I'm here for long enough, you'll hear it again and again. Because we need to be reminded of that. Because sometimes what happens is we think sanctification is about making ourselves something we're not. And that's when it begins to seem like an impossible task. Um, But what God does is he comes to us and says, no, you've already been remade. You don't need to do the remaking. What you need to do is live as you are to put on that life that is yours in Christ Jesus more and more and to put off those things that you used to be. And then this becomes not an impossible message but an encouraging message because we're reminded this mind that accomplished all of this in the life of Christ is the mind that's at work in the life of his people. And Paul says that's especially important in the church to have this kind of mind that was Christ's mind, to cultivate that, to not to grasp after things that are of our advantage, but to do those things that are glorifying to God and are good for our neighbors. Um, Again, it's not rocket science, right? Love God and love your neighbor. It's easy in the stating. It takes the wisdom of Solomon in the living. But that's what we're called to do as a church. Have this mind, Paul says, among yourselves, particularly in the church. It's important that we don't grasp after anything that that is good for us, but grasp after only those things that are glorifying to God and good for his people. That's how we begin to live a life of service, being willing to become nothing for the sake of others. And then we see how that all just flows out of what Paul has already said. That's how you do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Christ was unrivaled in glory, and he gave himself. He gave himself until there was nothing left to give. That's the mind of Christ. That should be the mind of the church. 
We give ourselves fully to God. We give ourselves fully to one another. And in humility, we count our fellow members in the church more significant than we are. Just as Jesus Christ counted us more significant than himself and was willing to give up his glory and his life and his soul for the people he loved. That's what it means to have that mind and to live that kind of life. And it's important that we remember not just that that's the kind of life we are called to live, but we need to remember where that life leads. Right? So as we're called to consider his service and cultivate his mind, we also need to remember his reward. Because the story doesn't end in humiliation and death. Right? That would kind of be a bummer of a sermon. If it was he humbled himself to death on a cross, amen, let's pray. Uh, but we don't serve a dead Lord, do we? The grave is not where it ended. His obedience was from womb to the tomb, but the tomb is not where his life ended. Right? Because he was exalted by his father after he humbled himself to the point of death. Um, there's an important therefore in our passage. He humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The story doesn't end in humiliation. It doesn't end in death. It actually ends in triumph. It's important for us to remember that that's where the mind of Christ leads. It doesn't end in defeat. It ends in triumph. Um, and that's important for us because the world will tell us to live like Paul is calling us to live is to live a sucker's life. Right? You're asking to be taken advantage of in this world if you don't look out for yourself. Right? That's what the world would tell us. You need to look out for number one. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there. It's player be played. And if you're going to give yourself up to other people, you're just going to get taken advantage of. That's no way to live. You have to look out for yourself. Um, the world is filled with that kind of advice, that you have to really put yourself first to accomplish anything. Right? I can't love anyone else before I love myself. Right? I can't really help other people until I get me sorted out. That's the way the world likes to talk, but that's not the way we learn in Christ. And it's important for us to remember that that mindset does not lead to defeat. It leads to triumph and victory. It doesn't lead to humiliation. It leads to exaltation. And so we need to remember Christ's reward. We need to remember the reason that he won his reward. It was because of his faithfulness. He emptied himself for the sake of his Father's glory. He emptied himself for the sake of other people. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name. It's his faithfulness that leads to the reward. It's his faithfulness that leads to the glory. We have to remember the reason for the reward is Christ's faithfulness. That's the reason he has been highly exalted. And that leads us to consider the richness of that reward. Right? He humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, but where was his exaltation? Higher than anyone can be exalted. 
That language highly exalted has a sense of uniqueness, that there's no higher place you could be exalted to. There's no higher place you can go than Christ has gone. There's no higher place than God has, can put him. Ruling at the right hand of the Father is the top spot. There's no higher to be than where Christ is. He is highly exalted, and he's been given the name that's above every name. Um, and what is that name? Well, I think we can say with confidence that name is Lord. God has made him both Lord and Christ. That, that name that was so important in the Old Covenant as being the covenant name of God. Other people knew that there was a God, they might call him the Most High God, but it was his people who knew him as the Lord, Yahweh, his special covenant name that he bore for his people. And so when Jesus is exalted to the highest place you can be exalted, he's given the highest name that can be given, the Lord of the Covenant. He is the new covenant God who's Lord of his people. The richness of that reward is unmatched. It's that name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. That's the result of the reward is that everyone will acknowledge him. That's why one of the things that we always want to tell people when we proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, is that every knee will bow one way or another. There is not a knee that will fail to bow. There is not a tongue that will fail to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. We're told here, everyone will do it. Whether you're in heaven, on earth, under the earth, you're going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The thing is, you want to confess him as the Lord you've believed in and always looked for, who you've loved and longed for his appearing, so that your knee will bow and your tongue will confess his name in inexpressible joy that the Lord you've been waiting for has come. That that day when he arrives will be a great and awesome day of un unspeakable joy. That's how everyone who believes in him will greet him at his coming. But there will be those who bow the knee and confess his name unwillingly. Those who have not believed his name. The demons and the devil who have resisted him, they will be forced to bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Um, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess on that day. And so we plead with everyone who hears, put your faith and trust in Christ. Trust in what he's done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. That he saves us from our sins. That we can't save ourselves. We have to put our trust in his work. Only he could have died that death on the cross that makes payment for our sins. Only he can set us free from the tyranny of the devil. And he comes to us today and says, today is the day of salvation. He still is holding out his hand to people to be believed in. That we can find refuge in him. And that's the whole calling of his word. That he sets before us life in Christ and death in our sins. And says, choose life. 
why would you die? Today is the day of salvation so that that day that's coming when he comes in glory will not be a day of fear, will not be a day of sorrow, will not be a day of grief where those in the earth wail on account of him, but where those who believed in him and confessed his name will say, here's the one I've been waiting for. This is our God, as Isaiah says. We've waited for him. And he's here. We loved him. We've longed for his appearing, and he's here. That's what we want to do, is consider the result of that reward and be those who confess his name in faith to the glory of God the Father. And finally, we need to remember the reach of his reward. That that reward extends not to Jesus alone, but to all those who are found in him. Because what is the promise of Scripture? Those who believe in Jesus Christ share in all that's his. You're an heir to eternal life and an heir to everything that's his. That means the Lord promises to exalt you who humble yourselves in his service. The world does not think much of us. And that's okay. Because in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter who who thinks anything of you except for God. His opinion is all that really matters. And what does he say? Those who humble themselves, I will exalt. We share in that reward. As, As Christ has been exalted, we will be exalted. We will rule and reign with him. He's been given a great name. We're given great names. The names we've been given is Christian. It's a great name we now have that we share in the anointing of Christ as those who love him and believe in him. And just as he has been the recipient of great glory, so God's people too will be recipients of great glory in Christ. That's the promise to God's people. That's our hope that in life we might be able to bring glory to the Father. So let us not cease to praise God for the glorious service of our Lord Jesus Christ. And let's not just think about what he's done, but seek to emulate that mind that is in us in service to God and to our neighbor. And let us remember that those who put their trust in him will not be put to shame. Those who believe in Jesus Christ and humble themselves as he has will be exalted by the Father as he has been exalted to rule and to reign with him. To him be the glory, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for the rich blessing of belonging to our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his great service that he did not count equality with you a thing to be grasped, but was willing to empty himself and exchange the form of glorious God for the form of suffering servant. We thank you for his obedience, even to the point of death. He sought to glorify you and to love us. And may we follow that example. May we strive among ourselves, particularly in the church, to show that kind of love to you and one another. That as the mind of Christ is at work in us, we might be more and more who we are in him. That we might be reminded that service to you is costly in this world, but it will be rewarded 
not because we've earned the reward, but because because Christ has earned it on our behalf. And therefore, we can be assured that we too will be exalted at your right hand to live and to rule and to reign with Christ, who is our hope for glory. So help to remind us of these things, Lord, and may we cultivate that mind so we might be a better service to you and to our neighbors. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.